everyone, JJ Cooper, Kyle Glazer joining you to talk top 100 prospects. We posted the top 100 early this week. We do apologize that the podcast talking about it had to wait a little longer. We had this thing called the College Preview. I mean, we do put out a magazine every two weeks, and the College Preview is a pretty massive undertaking. Thankfully, that has been sent to the uh, to the uh, to the printer. We uh, have the uh, all top 25 capsules are up now. We have uh, the junior college preview up to the junior college baseball starting today. I'm excited. We also have the top 50 JUCO draft prospects up today, plus 150 more names to know. So it's it's beginning. But as college baseball begins, we're going to lead into the top hundred. This has this is top hundred prospect Jermaine. But Kyle, we had a big one last night. We had a big trade last night. Two of the top hundred who are listed there as Brewers, if you go to the top 100 right now on our site, they've got a new uh, home address. Absolutely. The Marlins now have acquired four of the top 100 prospects this offseason. We saw them acquire Sandy Alcantara in the Marcelo Zuna deal. They acquired Jorge Guzman in the Giancarlo Stanton deal. Last night in the Christian Yelich deal, they acquired two really, really exciting center fielders. Lewis Brinson, who's one of the top 20 prospects in the game, as well as Monty Harrison, who finally stayed healthy and showed himself to be a premier talent, got onto the top 100 at number 75. And with another season of health, you absolutely see the skills for him to be a top 50 prospect, if not more. So, look, the Marlins went into the offseason very clearly that they were going to try and start over. They had an interesting offensive core with Stanton, Ozuna, Yelich, Justin Bohr, J2 Real Muto, D. Gordon, where you said, hey, if they add some pitching, maybe they can contend. Clearly, they felt that they didn't have the finances to do that. And, you know, rather than go halfway and just get rid of, you know, Stanton and Ozuna and, and get 200 guys and, you know, maybe hold on to Real Muto and Yelich, who are still young and, and somewhat affordable, clearly they said after, you know, everything with Christian Yelich about not wanting to show up to FanFest and broken relationship, that word leaks out. Clearly, they made a move, and, and they've restocked the system. You know, again, this is, to biggest, do, this is the, the biggest, biggest haul move. they got in any of the deals. Biggest haul, and at a certain point, once you get past a certain point, you kind of might as well, and they made that call. I, I will say, and there is a deeper podcast to be done here. I kind of would interesting on. I'll be interested in hearing what uh, what you listeners think. JJ Cooper at BaseballAmerica.com is my email address. I'd love to hear what you think because I don't know the answer to this yet. I've been asking people questions on this, but we something that is broken in baseball is is what you just laid out there is is that yeah where the marlins were coming into the offseason is if they wanted to contend realistically they needed to spend on an annual basis another 30 to 40 million dollars on their pitching staff and part of it was because they had bad contracts handed out to pitchers previously right. with way in chen and, right and, and but it, so it spiraled where they sit with a coming into the offseason with a bad farm system, a bottom of baseball, not the worst, but pretty close, bad farm system, with a rotation that was very questionable, a great a lineup that if everyone stayed healthy, the lineup was great also, but at the same time, the downside of that was is a very thin lineup. You know, you have teams who can have an injury and then they have someone ready to plug in. The Marlins were in a situation, and they've been this way for multiple years back when they were a little better roster. There, there was not tremendous depth. Stanton goes down, and all of a sudden you're looking around. Well, and 42-year-old Itro, who's a free agent this right. year, but you were talking about guys like that. You know, Derek Dietrich's been a nice player off the bench, but there's definitely not a whole he's lot of He's essentially, he's their primary backup 
before all this. Now he's going to be a regular, but he was their primary backup pretty much wherever. Right. We saw them have to go to JT Riddle at shortstop last year. We saw Brian Anderson have to take over at third. So, yeah, there's no question this and is not a deep roster. So the point being, though, is, is okay, if the ownership was not willing to spend 30 40 $50 million more per year to bulk up the pitching, and this new ownership made clear that was not going to happen, if that was not going to happen, even before they traded Stanton, you were talking about a team, and this is the problem of baseball that, again, I would love to hear if someone has an answer for this. Right now, every incentive of baseball is, is winning 75 to 80 is the worst spot you can be in. And the crazy thing about it is, is that they are better off getting rid of Real Muto still to come, maybe getting rid of Bohr still to come, although I don't think he has particularly a whole lot of value, just because when you talk about Christian Yelich, they traded him at his peak value in many ways because one of the things that made him the value that they got the biggest haul for him is that he's locked up for long term at modest at, a, at, at modest amounts per year. So with him, if you held on to him for next year and they win 70 or 72 or whatever, his value next year is less than this and... In the grand scheme, you don't have you don't you don't really get a whole lot out of that. You know, it's interesting. After they moved Giancarlo Stanton, it, I felt like, look, you are never going to replace Giancarlo Stanton. You're not going to replace the National League MVP. The guy is a superstar in every sense. But you could still say, okay, you still have Marcelo Zuni, you still have Christian Yelich, you still have Justin Bohr, you still have JT Real Muto. You know, there, there's still something there, a young group that you could maybe st- start to plug a little bit, just try and find some pieces to help. But when you say try to find pieces, though, they're not going to spend money. And that, and that's where it came down to. Once they made, they said, "Hey, this money that we've just saved by getting rid of Giancarlo Stanton's contract, we're not going to reinvest that in other places. We're using that for savings." That's where it was like, okay, there's no way here because there was a talent base. There was absolutely a talent base the Marlins had, but financially they decided it was not worth it to them to oh, try and pursue it. Right. And Again, if you say like, I mean, that is a deeper, you know, when you look at the revenue. Right. You could make an argument that if I was a Marlins fan, I understand completely where I would be like, we had a good team. I wish my owner would, the new ownership would spend more money because we had a lineup that we didn't need to really do much with. Because we haven't even talked about, you know, they also traded away, you know, D. Gordon was, you know, they've they've essentially taken last year's team. And when this is all said and done, they're going to have completely blown up the lineup and really have gotten rid, again, wisely at this point. At this point, it makes no sense keeping JT Real Muto for. 2018, where they're going to be terrible. Let's just be flat out honest. And there is no real path right now for them to be successful in 2019. So Real Muto is still locked up for for years to come. But earliest free agent 2021. Right. But again, that's the value of him in some ways. The closer he gets to 2021, the less value he potentially has because young and cost controlled is valuable and. Again, this is a, I mean, I could see their argument that this is a problem of baseball, is that ideally baseball would have incentives that would actually make it, would be better for fans if there was that winning 75 games was better than winning 62. 
And winning 82 would be better than right. 75. Exactly. I think and again, right now, with we've seen the second wild card a lot of time. Last year we had an 85-win team and an 87-win team. It but ranges if, from 85 to, to 97. 90. Right. It's but it's it's tough once you get into you know hey a winning season used to be hey positive thing we're stepping forward and teams are increasingly seeing 83 and 79 as not much and and there's arguments to both sides of that. I, I will say for the Marlins. You know, look, what was positive about this deal in particular is we've talked about the Marlins. They needed depth, and they'd added some pieces in the Ozuna trade. You know, Sandy Alcantara, Magnus Sierra, you know, quality players. But with this trade, they got guys who, in the particularly Lewis Brinson, can be a face-of-the-franchise caliber talent who is big league ready right now. And they can start at least saying, hey, we're going to start putting something together now. We're not going to run two years of terrible players out at every position. And then wait and have everyone come up at once. They're starting the trickle. You can see Brinson in the outfield this year. You can see Sierra in the outfield this year. I think you'll at least start to see, okay, some of the young talent will at least be at the big league level, which is, it's something. The the thing I'll say for this is, is that they could, and especially considering the state of their farm system and their big league lineup, I think there's a very good chance that they end up with three starters out of this trade. You know, and Brinson is penciled in right now. Brinson's a starter right away. Monte Harrison, obviously going to take a little bit more time, but it is... We'll start at double A. In theory, he could be 2019-2020. Isan Diaz, who last year... We, we did not see peak Isan Diaz last year, and there's a reason for that, which is, is that there, was, there were injuries. Played through a broken hammock. Right. There were injuries that kept him from doing that. But it is not a stretch, and especially, again, if you look at the depth chart that he's facing right now, to say that really he becomes their best middle infield prospect immediately. Oh, that's fair. So with all that, that is potentially three starters, and all three of which, this is not something where you're acquiring a guy whose ceiling is as a second division regular. These are all guys who could be parts of really successful teams. Again, I really like that. That was a trade to me that made perfect sense for both teams. Because from the Marlins standpoint, it makes perfect sense because, again, at this point, you should tear it all down. Just wipe it away. But on the flip side, if you're the Brewers, you just improved your big league club. Got a, uh, an outfielder who both is really solid defensively and can really hit. And the power potential, the power just keeps coming on a little bit by a little bit. So they get the big league club. And they didn't give up anyone who, I don't think they hurt their chances of winning in 2018. They obviously helped it there. I don't think they hurt their chances of winning in 2021. They're, they're managing to contend in 2018 and with a solid deep farm system. The guys that they gave up, Lewis Brinson could end up better than Christian Yelich, but at the same time, their timetables aren't different enough where you say, man, you know, okay, this is really going to help the Brewers in 2018, but kill by 2020, it's going to kill them. No, they'll still have Yelich. And they'll still have, you know, look, we talked about the depth. There's obviously some more moves to be to come. They're going to need to enhance their pitching staff if they're Absolutely. really serious about contending in the National League. But you see a situation now where they still have Brett Phillips, they still have Domingo Santana, they still have Keon Broxton. There's still a group of young outfielders that are in the house there in case something goes wrong with Yelich or Lorenzo Cain ages out. So I feel like the Brewers, look, teams, you build depth, you trade from the depth to address 
in this case, not that that field was a weakness, but Christian Yelich, as, as, much, as, as much as those guys are all talented, Christian Yelich is clearly a step above. So I feel like you're right. This is a trade where I see, look, did the Brewers give up a lot? No question about it. I do think it was worth it looking at where their team's at, what the composition of their team is, the contracts involved. And for the Marlins, it was worth it too. You got two premium prospects. Isan Diaz was a top 100 prospect a year ago, and we'll see what he looks mm-hmm. like coming back. You know, and even Jordan Yamamoto, the fourth guy in the deal, was second in the Midwest League in strikeouts as a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. As a 21-year-old in the Carolina League, fell a few innings short of qualifying for the ERA title. If he had those few more innings, he wins the Carolina League ERA mm-hmm. title by more than half a run. You know, it's one of those guys where the scout profile isn't great. 89-93, shows you one breaking ball. You know, the scouts don't love it. But he's 21. He's been a, wildly a very, successful at every level. There is a very plausible path to him to having a big league role. Absolutely. When that's your fourth piece, a guy who's young, successful, at every level, moving appropriately, you're in good shape. The other thing, again, with this is you just you hit on it. Like, we don't. We now need to see what the Brewers do next. They obviously then right away win sign Lorenzo Cain, which means, by the way, defensively in their outfield, if they wanted to, there are directions they could go with this that would be exceptional defensively. I don't think that's what the way they're going to go. I think Ryan Braun's got 10-5 rights, so Ryan Braun's going to be part of it, and Ryan Braun by himself does not really fit as when you're talking about exceptional defensive outfields. That's not who Ryan Braun is at this point in his career. But... Right now, I posted this on Twitter last night. I'll throw it out to you. Their backup outfield. Oh, okay? it's better than Kian Broxton, Domingo Santana. Assuming I said, let's say Braun's starting. Kian Broxton, Domingo Santana, Brett Phillips. That's, That's obviously a, better than the Marlins we're talking about here. It's better than the White Sox. It's better than the White Sox. There are probably, I would say, it's better than the Giants. Oh, easily by you know, by, so, light, by light years. You know, I'm, better I'm, than the Padres. Depends if you believe in uh, in Hunter Renfro's ability to bounce back, Renfro, Margot, and then right now it's some mix of Alex Dickerson, Jose Perella, Corey Spangenberg, Franchi Cordero. I, I, I unless you, know, you move I, Will Myers back out there, yeah, I think no, it's, I, I think you know, it probably which is could better. happen if they sign Hosmer. I think it, pro- know. I think it probably is better. Uh, you, you've got so, me ch- no, there's there's no question. The Brewers are in good shape. And, and by the way, I, I, the other thing that stands out with that is is that like to me again, you could keep Kian Broxton, you you know, and trade. Phillips and Santana. I don't think you keep Santana. He was Santana. Understandably, would not to me be thrilled about a backup role. Like he's well, coming he, off the year he o- had. Offensively, he's a starter. Defensively, there were some. I issues. think to me, like it makes sense that he goes to an AL team where DH becomes more of an option at times. Um, but to me, Brett Phillips is almost the platonic ideal of a fourth outfielder. Well, especially in the National League, he'll bring speed. You know, he's a guy that you can rotate in, start two, three days a week, pinch run him, pinch hit And by the way, not that they need it, but the interesting thing will be interested to see the lineup is, is Yelich came to me as your best center fielder. Well, he's going to – so he played center last year. He's much better in left, but bronze in left. Kane's your center fielder. I guess Yelich goes to right. But Yelich doesn't have an arm for right either. That's that's where Brett Phillips, again, Brett Phillips, arm not a problem. Right. So, you know, so again, so that's our lead-in to get into the top 100. You know, thank you for indulging us as we went in that direction. But again, that has relevance to what we're talking about. Brinson was a top 20 prospect. Uh, Harrison was number 75. Brinson was 18, I think. Brinson was 18, one of the top outfielders. And again, Isan Diaz was a top 100 last year. Missed it this year on an injury-plagued year. Um, 
But that leads into, okay, so now top 100. We'll start again from the top. Yes, BA subscribers, you've read about this in detail. But Kyle, this was a really, really difficult and fun decision at number one. I would say three candidates. You know, we had, obviously, I'll go in no order, Shoei Otani, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Ronald Acuna, and... I will say to you, the thing that strikes me is, is if any of those guys was number one, I feel really good about it. No question. I think you look at certain years, there's a clear number one that's head and shoulders above everyone else. There's other years where you look at it and go, man, there's no, one there's number, no one. number one. Here, there's three guys that really in a lot of other years would be your number one prospect. I think we generally agree looking this year, uh, it's a much just kind of better top class than maybe last year's group was. And I I mean, that's, that Look, there's an argument for all three of these guys, as you all well know by now. We went for Ronald Acuna, and J.J. hit on this with his column and sort of the way I went into this thinking. You know, Shohei Otani obviously coming over as this big two-way talent, but just as we've dug more and more with players who faced him, coaches who faced him, scouts, there's concerns. A, his swing does get a little long. He did strike out at a pretty elevated rate in Japan, even though he had the home runs mm-hmm. and the high average. Um, on top of that... He just never faced inside fastballs. You know, I was talking with Dennis Safarte, who uh, was a former big league reliever who's become uh, one of the stars of Japan, Pacific League MVP in 2017. And he mentioned that the Japanese pitchers, no one pitched Otani right. inside because they Otani is a right-handed thrower but a left-handed hitter, so his right elbow is ex- out and exposed. No Japanese pitcher wanted to be the guy that hit Shohei Otani in his right elbow and ruined his career. So none That's of the an ja- adjustment he's got to make now at the same time. There was a sense he could make it. He's, he's a, a power he's hitter. He's a power hitter. He's, he's, a, ath- he's got the athleticism, right. I, shows some barrel control. It normally, again, I mean, I know there's a difference between busted inside and leaving it on the inner half, but... Normally, for a power hitter, you know, it's something, and again, there's not been really that many questions about bat speed with him. So, as a hitter, it would not surprise me eventually that he'd be like, this is great. I mean, I can, I can yank that pitch, you know, but it's an adjustment. And the big question with that's going to be how much the Angels will, are letting him hit. But they signed him as a pitcher. They signed him because they need him to front their rotation, not to be the key hitter in the lineup. And, and that's where it just, Going down, you know, talking with everyone, and again, if he, you know, rips a ligament and, and, and his elbow and he's limited to hitting, this changes. But for now, people should really view him as he's the Angels' number one starter who will hit. You know, he's going to get some DH at-bats, intermixing with, you know, the Albert Pujols, C.J. Crone, you know, dynamic. That still has to work itself out. But even just listening. Well, no, no, the thing with that is I only have Pujols signed for what? Uh, Four? 2021. It goes through 2021 still. Um you know, it's something Four where... Four more years on that deal, by the way. Just yeah. Oh, yeah. Fun times. Um, I, I do think, though, with Shohei Otani, look, at the end of the day, what's going to define him as a, as a big leaguer and just the workload of trying to mm-hmm. hit and pitch is so much, the ultimate expectation is he's just going to end up pitching only. You know, he'll come in, he might hit some home runs, but I think... They're going to have to give him a legit shot, though, because, I mean, that's they'll, a they'll promise give, They'll, they'll give a him a shot, but, but everyone... It seems like the, the unspoken expectation is... You know, potentially by August, even depending on where he is and how run down he is and where the season is at for the Angels, he's going to be pitching first and foremost. And so for me, it became a clear pitcher versus position player debate. And I'm big on history, what history tells us beyond baseball, light, you know, politics, finance, whatever. History is pretty clear in this regard. Assuming comparable talent, 
you know, a, 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 you know, franchise player in your order versus your number one starter, always take the position now, player. Always, always, always. Now always. let me take that though a further step. So like, and we talked about this. I mean, but that doesn't mean a pitcher could never be number one on ours going forward, because really, but what it comes down to is, is would you agree with my look at it? Is is, but to be for a pitcher to be number one. There can't. It's going to be really hard to be number one if there is also a very viable number one candidate to hitter. Absolutely, and I think with Ronald Acuna as well, it goes beyond just the skills, but the performance production as well. Because look, Nippon Pro Baseball is the highest level of baseball outside of the major leagues in the world. Period. No question about it. So for a a position player to outdo, you know, a number one starter who's dominated there at his best, it would have to be a guy that's you know in the teenager got up to the upper minors and mashed and voila we had that with ronald Mm -hmm. acuna you know and matt eddy the great numbers man here at baseball america was able to put acuna season into context using you know age relative to level all his weighted averages and he came out right along with alex rodriguez and mike trout level production as a teenager in the upper minors if you're going to take a guy over a, a number one big league ready starter it's going to be that. That's the only position player to me that's worthy of going above that guy. It has to be upper upper, upper level see, no, success. See, and, and this we have disagreements. Right, we because, for, me, say, for me, for, for, for me, for me, Vlad, Vlad Guerrero Jr. very well could have fit into this as well. And I, I see the argument. I'm saying for me, yeah. I need to see upper level, and not just upper level problems, but upper level but, dominance. And Acuna showed that. And so for me, that's why I went into this comfortable with Ronald Acuna over Shohei Otani. I think I'll say with that, the other part of it is, was, is that just, and I don't, I mean, it's taking it too far to say you've got one guy who, you know, is making 35 appearances, 34, 33, and one who plays 155 games. But, you, okay, we look at, I mean, we, to me, I look at the track record of top Japanese pitchers coming over to the States. It's a pretty good one. I would actually argue that it is better than the major league free agent pitching market usually. Now, part of that is is that the best major league pitchers often, Clayton Kershaw has not hit free agency. You know, that doesn't, that often happens. But I would say there are a whole lot, uh, if you compare the dice, you know, yes, there's Daisuke who flamed out very quickly on the Japanese pitcher coming over, ace pitchers coming over, but you've got Yu Darvish, you've got Masahiro Tanaka, you've got a, you know, and even some even of the second level guys, Hisashi Iwakuma, Iwakuma. Kenta Maeda's done right. well. You've got, you've, got the, you've got a very good track record there. And if you say, hey, there's been a, you know, there's been a, you know, a dice K, and my counter to that is, is okay, ask the Tigers about Jordan Zimmerman. You know, to ask, a, you know, there's. And, and by the way, dice K, you know, who's quote unquote considered the failure, eight years in the big leagues, 4 4 5 ERA, overall such a solid league average pitcher, and his peak year. 18 and 3, 2.90 at his age 27 but, season. So you still got an ace season out of peak year and an eight year career of you know solid league average production. But and that's your worst case. But at the You're same in good time, shape. we had this discussion kind of on, you know, in our around the office discussion on this. If to me, if we say that Otani ends up having a Darvish career or a Darvish first six years. Because Darvish is now hit free agency and still looking for a deal, but Darvish, a Darvish for six years, that's really good. You, you Darvish is a four-time All-Star sandwiched around Tommy John surgery. He's 
essentially never had a bad season during his healthy, you know, his times of health in the majors. At his best, he's been really good. He's been a, I was front of the rotation, number two starter at least. Absolutely. That to me, and again, I will also rewinding the clock. They're different, but I do not feel as a pitcher that Shohei Otani is clearly he throws harder, a little bit, but I don't think that he is clearly a significant step ahead where you Darvish as a pitcher was coming out of Japan. And that was the big thing, you know, that I thought was most uh, the biggest revelation talking to a lot of players who faced, you know, you Darvish in the majors and Shohei Otani in Japan, or in some cases even Masahiro Tanaka in Japan and or the majors, as well as uh, Otani in Japan. And what pretty consistently came out was at this point in time, right now, he is not as good as Yu Darvish was coming out of Japan or Masahiro Tanaka was coming out of Japan. A lot's because he's younger. Darvish was 25 when he came mm-hmm. over. Darvish, they talked about, had a much better pitch arsenal, knew how to sequence a lot better. Tanaka was much better about commanding his stuff down in the zone. Ot- but there's a sense that while Otani is not as good as those guys right now at the moment he comes over from Japan, I also, and that was unanimous, mm-hmm. it was also unanimous that they felt he could be better than those guys with three years of development. So by the time that Shohei Otani is 26, he could be better than what you Darvish and Masahiro Tanaka were at 26 because the stuff is a little bit firmer, there's a little bit more explosiveness there. And so that's where, for me, I feel like if Shohei Otani comes over this year and is, you know, just to throw numbers out there, 13-9 and with a 3.85 ERA... That's a perfectly, you know, suitably above average league pitcher. People will be disappointed, but that's also not his peak. You know, I had uh, someone else in my research said there's no way he wins a Cy Young this year, but in three years he might. Whereas you look at a guy like Yu Darvish, who was top 10 Cy Young voting his rookie year, Tanaka right. has been in some of those conversations. So, so he's not as polished, but he could be better two, three years down the road. The other thing that stands out that I, I did want, because we get this question a lot, and I, I think it's a very useful point to make. Eloy Jimenez is four on this list. Victor Robles is five. Glaber Torres is six. Nick Senzel, seven. Where does the line for you, where would you draw the line and say, last year's number one, and I'm not saying compare where Andrew Benintendi is now, but where Andrew Benintendi was coming into last season, our 2017 number one prospect. I would say it's pretty clear to me I would put him behind those top three. Yeah. Where is that line drawn for you? It's it's about the same. I might put Eloy ahead of him. I would that, put that, Eloy ahead so of him. So to me, that's, you know, ben, and Benintendi, by the way, you know, it's, it's funny. People obviously uh, were so entranced by Aaron Judge, as they should have been. Benintendi had a, a pretty good rookie year, you know, 2020, uh, 273, 52, 424. Really good rookie year. And, and it almost just uh, people like, oh, yeah, that guy too. I, I do think that. You know, for me, the top three is clearly above. I would probably go Eloy ahead as well, but I would not go Glaber Robles ahead of, of Benintendi. See, Robles versus Benintendi, like, I mean, they're going to do it different ways. You know, Benintendi could play center field in a different situation, not going to play for them. But Robles is, you know, uh, a stud center fielder defensively. Obviously, I don't. I think I do think Benintendi, you know, they're both hit first, although Benintendi, I think, has a little bit more power. 
That's an interesting debate, but I would take Eloy. If you, if you said where Eloy Jimenez is right now, because Eloy has some upper-level track record, not where Benintendi was this time last year, but some upper-level track record. I do think they're both guys who hit and have power. I think Eloy has more power. Mm-hmm. I think Benintendi has more defensive value. That's tough, but I mean, I probably would take Eloy. You know, and Eloy's doing it you know, at a little bit younger age. He'll probably hit the big leagues a little younger than Benintendi did. Put it all together, I probably would take Eloy. Just that, just again, that just summarizes though. This is a really stacked top of the top hundred. Um, the other thing that stands out, once you get past Otani, we have Pitcherland. Pitcherland starts at ten. Mm-hmm. Pitcherland goes from ten to uh, seventeen. Really seventeen, because we have we have Whitley, Kopech, Keller, Bueller, Honeywell. Skip two spots, Reyes. Talk about to you, Kyle. Like so, we ended up. Forrest Whitley leads off. He is the uh, he is uh, the 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 front of the train of Pitcherland here. Why? You know, what is it with Forrest Whitley, or is there someone again? This is a uh, cons- this is something we put together as a consensus. Who would you? You know, I mean, because this is a tough group. Yeah, you to know, separate it, it, because it, there's a lot of different strengths and weaknesses. You here. know, it's interesting. I I think that for me coming in, I would have thought you know. Again, just in the discussion I have with evaluators all year, oh, Walker Bueller's the best guy I've seen all year, Mitch Keller's close, Michael Kopech's higher up. I would have initially thought that maybe those three uh, would go above. And, oh, by the way, Brent Honeywell, who's the one with the full season at AAA, was the Futures Game MVP, and everyone agrees has a bright future ahead of him. But once I started putting it out to just pro scouts and pro scouting directors, I was actually, I want to say amazed is the right word, but definitely raised my eyebrows a bit how consistent and unanimous it was that Forrest Whitley is the best of this group. Whitley obviously is incredibly promising. We also have a guy who has 95, you know, 95 innings under his belt at last year, not mm-hmm. a huge workload, a little bit at double A. Although when you say not a huge workload, like in the crazy world of now, nowadays for a first-year high school pitcher, like that's become like the standard. Yes, and well, even in the case just of, of I just want to make a point, and, that and even is, in the case of Walker Bueller, who was you know coming off TJ, he was held under 100 innings as well. Right. So, so what I'm saying with that is, is that like I would say you can say he has not proven he can throw 150 pro innings. I would also say with that, like just as a cautionary tale, is he has also not been given the opportunity to. Right. I do think anyway, but look, this is a guy six seven. We all see right-handers, uh, pitchers of that height can sometimes have a little bit of trouble throwing strikes, but. Hasn't been an issue with him. I really, really uh, just came out of this. I went in with a tremendous amount of respect for Forrest Whitley. The calls I made on him throughout the year were, wow, this guy's incredible. He's top 25, no doubt. But I think it was when it it really just came back text message after text message after text message where Whitley, to me, is the top guy of that group with separation. That was really eye-opening to me. I think if you said, if we're talking about any of these pitchers and you said, who ends up being the pitcher of the 2020s, the one to me who is most likely, more so than Shohei Otani, the one here, and again, that's not saying he's going to do it, but if you said, if you told me we're look, we're, we're having, Kyle, me and you are here in 2030 recording this podcast, and we say, who is the pitcher of the 2020s? If you told me that Forrest Whitley was that guy, it would not in any way shock me. Now, again, there are a thousand off-ramps that could keep him from getting there, but he has present stuff at age 19. 
you know, he had, I mean, he did it at a level that pitchers his age. I, again, I am not a big, the reality of it is, is that age for level is way less important for a pitcher than it is for a hitter. I think there's consistent data on that. But, and there is, there is the absolute frightening thing, which is, is that we talked about last year, Julio Urias was the platonic ideal of a pitching prospect and that he had always been young for his level. He has legit stuff. He was big league ready at an age where most pitchers are saying, okay, can I handle a ball? And here we are a year later, and we're hoping that the shoulder surgery worked well and that he's going to be back. So, again, there is, there is a concern in some way about being so good so young. That being said, 19-year-old teenagers who make it to AA, who strike out 14 per nine, who have five pitches, who understand, you know, who throw at least a, I mean, his control got better. And that was key for me. You know, early on in the year, he walked 4.1 per nine at Quad Cities. You say, okay, you know, he's a six foot seven teenager. There's a lot of gangliness there. That might be an issue. Jumps to Boys Creek, drops to 2.5. And again, small sample at AA. 26 strikeouts and four walks in 14 two-thirds innings. And it's not like there's a bunch of wild pitches or hit-by-pitches. Because sometimes with some of these young pitchers, we look strikeout to walk, and then you see, oh, but there's also 14 hit batters and 20 and 20 wild pitches, hashtag Riley Pint. Um, you know, with Whitley, there's none of that. And that, to me, was what, impressive. I mean, what is, I mean no. beyond the fact that he is, a, he is a young pitcher who has success which and throws hard, which you can be construed as a risk factor on its own right. What is the what is the big flashing caution, you know, light with Yeah, I mean Whitley? there's there's no big flashing caution light. More so than I mean look, all pitchers have but, a well, there's, you know, pitchers get hurt. There's some hype, but in terms of what he's but, done, what he's the, shown and what he's done, there's nothing, you know, hugely red flag. The thing that stands out to me is is okay, when we'll talk about this pitcher land here. Michael Kopech who's one spot behind him. The caution light with him is, is his control got better last year, but he, you know, he has had suspensions in the past. He's had a, you know, an injury, you know, where he basically got in a fight. But beyond that, though, the control has been a concern with Kopech. With Keller, they keep working on getting the changeup better. The changeup has made strides, but the changeup has been a two-year project, and is still got a little work to do. It's with, getting there. The, the, what he showed in the fall league, I think we saw the league people show, but he's got to show over the course of a, of a full right. season. Yes. With with Bueller, Tommy John limited innings. Tommy John limited innings, small some effort and smaller stature, smaller stature. With Honeywell, now again, if you said last to me, he's the guy that's the least risky of all these guys because he has he's had a full season basically. You see, you see four four pitches. You see durability. You see, you know, you know dominant stuff I, I, to me he's the guy that's the least risky of all these and and by the way it would not shock me i'm not saying it'll happen i'm not going to bang the table mm-hmm. and, and declare my my put my life on it but it would not shock me if we look back five years from now and say man this is the guy who's had the best big league career because he's the one who's staying in a rotation getting through a lineup three four times because he has the stuff because he has the durability it would not shock me so i, I think you know it's important we talk about you know, I mentioned Whitley was, you know, getting some, hey, he's he's the top guy here with some separation. The next group of the Keller, Bueller, Honeywell, Reyes, I got all different orders with mm-hmm. most then saying, honestly, you could probably put them in any order. This right. is how I Honeywell would do it. Honeywell is the safest of that group. I would also say of that group, and this is 
that's a very lofty group. I would say he is the safest of that because he has the most track record of durability, he has the most pitches, and he has a, a full AAA season under his belt of success, a, lot, a long period of success now in the minors. Right. He's never not succeeded. Right. So you have that. But then at the same time, if you talk about pure upside, I mean, Michael Kopech could end up being, you know, absolutely this flamethrower who carries 98 to 100, for, you know, for... Late into, the, yeah. late into a game. But You know, and then Mitch Keller, the thing with Mitch Keller that always stands out is, is he does it, he's got that fastball breaking ball, and he does it really easy. And he's had a long track record of success. Bueller is, again, it is high-octane... And if the thing all, is, he's all he was great in high school. He was great at Vanderbilt. He's he's another guy who's never not not and, not pitched well. And the guy that we just have to throw in here at the back of this is is Alex Reyes is at the back back of this list, basically because we have to see him get back on the mound and show us I'm the Alex Reyes you saw before the injury. If he does that, he is he, every if, bit as part of this conversation as any of the rest of them because he also if he, if he, has if, two if, pitches if, that are dominant. If he does that, I take him above all these guys. I really do. And I think talking, I, I did the Cardinal system this year, and, you know, talking to a number of front office officials, look, they're not going to, you know, bang a guy, but there was legit, genuine hope there in the sense that everything was on track. There were no setbacks. They expect him to, you know, get out in spring training. He actually leaned up. They talked a lot about, you know, being, because throughout his rehab, he was with the big league club. And they talked a lot about him being around Adam Wainwright, being around Lance Lynn, being around these guys, seeing how they prepared, seeing how they worked out. They mentioned he he started eating better. He got a lot stronger. He really is a lot more lean muscle there. Better understanding of what to do as a professional. And the guy did have a sub you know a, a sub two ERA in uh, in his first big league stint, which included a couple starts. I, I truthfully you know if not for the Tommy John, this to me is the clear number one of this group. Obviously, Tommy John throws a wrench into that. But if, if Alex Reyes, again, even by June, July, if he's back and he's as good as we think he can be, it would not, again, shock me if, if he's, you know, he's, yeah, he's... He's the closest to the big leagues of all these healthy. I mean, because yeah. Honeywell's there with him, but Reyes has done Reyes it. Reyes is the one who's been there. He's been there. And he'll, you know, assuming health, he'll be back there, we know for sure. No, that, but I do think this was, it was a really good pitching crop. And again, just looking through it, I did feel like it was a little bit of a stronger pitching crop even than, than last year's as well. Um, just in terms, we have a mix of guys with durability, with octane. A lot of these guys have proven it. All these guys we're talking about have been to double A or higher. I, I think there's a nice mix of both upside and projection, but also track record. It's a really, really deep group. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I agree. Again, I really like the top of this top 100. And when you talk about the quality of a top 100 – the most important thing is the top of it. Right. When you get to the back of it, you are talking about, I mean, just to put, you know, just to be completely transparent about it, we agonize over who's 81, who's 82, who's 98, who's 100, who's left off. We do. At the same time, if you said, uh, this is the way I've described it, and I think it, it holds up. I feel very confident if you take 1 to 10 on this list and you say, as a group, how do they perform in the next 15 years? I would say even 1 to 20. The top 20 no, no, but hold historically. On. Let me, yeah. 1 to 10 will be better than 11 to 20. Correct. I feel very confident about that. 11 to 20, I feel pretty confident, will be better than 21 to 30. 
If you said you get 71 to 80 and I get 81 to 90, I am way less confident that 71 to 80 is going to outperform 81 to 90 because the delineation, the difference between Ronald Acuna, who's number one on this list, and Austin even Hayes, who's number 21, is pretty significant. Austin Hayes could end up being a better player, but I would feel very confident on saying, I think Acuna is going to be better. And I like Austin Hayes as a prospect. But at the same time, when we get to let's just randomly go here and say, okay, 66 is Adrian Morhome. He's 66. I'm going to go into the 80s. And Jay Groom is 83. Two lefties. I just pulled two lefties. Would not stun me in any way. Adonis Medina, right? He's 84. I cannot feel nearly as confident. That's a 20-spot difference. But the difference in those 20 spots is less than the difference between 1 to 21. I agree with that. You know, And so that's the thing. It, it is funny to me. The other thing that I always feel like I, I like pointing out is, is when we get the questions, why do you hate so-and-so? You ranked him somewhere in the 60s or the 70s. And I will point out again, you know, I mean, hey, we hate everyone. No, we actually root for all these prospects. We really do. We want players to succeed. But the other thing to remember is, is there are literally thousands and thousands of players in the minors. Saying someone is the 65th best player in the minor leagues. You're talking about still the top point oh 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 one percent of all players. You know what? You talk for a second while you okay. do that. I'm going to work out the numbers on all this. All right. So I think for me it was this. We talk about that pitcher group. Then you get into the next group of position players that I actually felt like we're still talking about elite prospects. Francisco Mejia, Austin Hayes, Brendan Rodgers, Royce Lewis. To me, you know, I look at this group. And we talked about, you know, I, I think we're all pretty confident 1 through 19, 1 through 20 will be better 20 to 24. But if you were to tell me next year, you know, Brendan Rodgers was a top 10 prospect at this time a year ago. If you were to tell me next year that Brendan Rodgers and Royce Lewis are top 10 prospects next year, and some of the guys we currently have have them, you know, something happens, someone falls up because, hey, it, it happens. Development goes sideways. I do still feel like you're talking about potential top 10 guys and then you even move down to the pitchers, the Mackenzie Gores, the Sixto Sanchez's, the Michelle Baez's, the Hunter Greens. I still, still think really, you yeah. still see guys with top 10 potential down into and again, 29. And the depth of this is, is that those guys can be in the 20s. That's something that stands out is, is that these are guys who have very plausible paths. So, you know. And there's, two, and there's one other guy here that I... I I don't want to say he's underrated because he's not, because we're talking about the number 30 prospect in all of baseball, uh, the number two left-handed prospect in all of baseball, was a top 10 draft pick last year, but A.J. Puck. I mean, this is a guy who I feel like because he slipped from being the potential number one at Florida to number six and was just so wild, a lot of people's opinions dropped of him, comes out this year. He works a lot with uh, Steve Connolly and, and the pitching mm-hmm. coordinators and Stockton. When you, if you, of all the pitchers I saw this year, who was the most dominant pitcher I saw this year? It was not Michael Kopech, as as amazing as he was. It was not Brent Honeywell. I saw Walker Bueller. It was not Walker Bueller. It was AJ Puck, the guy who led all the minors in K's per nine last year, the guy who was 97-98 left side with movement and life, the guy who side to side slider was an "Are you kidding me?" pitch, whose changeup vastly improved and was just staying online so much better. If you were to tell me that A.J. Puck, after another year of just 
getting his delivery further in sync, starting to really get a feel for his body, because we all know those long, tall guys tend to take a little longer to, to really grow into themselves. Mm-hmm. I really, truly think A.J. Puck can be a number, a true number one start. Now, I can also see it going sideways, where the control really never does get better than average, and just even though he'll show you some dominant stuff in one start, he can't take it to the next. I can absolutely see that scenario. There's, I'm not going to, again, this is not a guy I'm so super confident in. I'm going to say he will be a number one starter. There are guys I feel that way about. He's not one of them. But I do see, I do see a lot more potential there than I think sometimes he's given credit for. And I think there's just some hesitation because of his track record, which is completely understandable. But when he's on... I mean, he's a guy, you know, we talk about, you know, this is our job and we all have a passion for baseball. And this goes for scouts, this goes for writers, this goes for everyone else. But there are certain guys you just watch and you just can't help but smile at the talent, at the level of dominance they can achieve because it's incredible. A.J. Puck is a guy whose name is not often thrown in that, you know, conversation. Mm -hmm. But I've seen him do it and it would not shock me if he does it again. My guy who is in this range who just, I love, 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 love. And if it was my personal list, would have been a good bit higher. It's Cabert Ruiz, the uh, Dodgers catcher. I really believe that you are talking about a guy who has star potential. Really, what? D- ditto, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Really, what I would describe him as is think of a Victor Martinez, Carlos Santana type hitter catcher that has that potential. He really hit for a, a, a high average hitter with some pop. Showed a lot more pop toward the end of the year. And But the thing about it is, is and I think he's better defensively than either of those guys. I think he has a chance to stay at catcher for a significantly longer period of time. But he's a, he's a many pass guy. Because if he ended up not being able to catch, I think the bat is good enough to handle a move to another position. I mean, th- think about this. If, if, even if he wasn't a catcher. Uh, we're talking about an 18-year-old switch hitter who hit 320 with a you know massive on-base percentage, showing growing power, and he's legitimately you know hitting for average from both sides. Even if that's not a catcher, that's still the profile of a top of a top 50 prospect in baseball. Now you have the fact that you know he catches, and again, receiving there was a sense that it needs a little bit of work, but it got better throughout the year. Really good timing, blocking. There were times where, you know, a couple of evaluators felt like some of, you know, his, his issues were more just lack of focus and concentration. And again, he's 18, that'll come. Uh, the biggest thing with him is going to be his arm. It's an average arm. It's not plus, it's not above average, it's average. And that's when it's right. The footwork and the transitions still have work. But again, you know, I remember talking to one evaluator who was a catcher in the big leagues and now is a scout. And he said, you know, there's definitely some things you can ding him on defensively. But I think about what I looked like at 18, and he's way ahead of where I was. And this is a guy who caught in the big leagues for many years. So, I mean, again, it, all things considered, he's in, he's in great shape. Another guy you can absolutely see, you know, top 10 in and a year or two years. The other thing that stands out to me is, is that, to me, when catchers don't hit at a young age, I understand it. They have a much, much tougher job than any other position does. If you're a shortstop, your job every day is largely to focus on what you do. You show up. If you do early work, you're doing your field to improve your defense. You do BP, you, you know, everything, and then you go out and play. Catcher is the one position where if you're an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, and you are spending 
a large portion of your workday in working, the bullpen, in working with meetings. others, working with others, it's a grind of beyond all grinds. And the thing about it is, is catchers often, because of that, understandably, one of the two is significantly behind the other. They're, if they're really good defensively, often the bat takes a long time to catch up. If they're good as hitters, often they end up being moved off position because the glove's so far behind. To have him hit like he has hit, to reach double A for the playoffs last year as a teenager, to do all that, and he is, again, he's not a fully polished catcher, but there's no talk of, oh, this guy doesn't have a chance to stay back there. None of that. I mean, like Francisco Mejia, who's higher up on this list, you know, Francisco Mejia could end up being a very solid catcher. He has the tools to do it. I got scouts two years ago who said, I don't know if he's a catcher long term. You saw this year with the Indians, with the situation they have, they're trying to develop a little bit of versatility in them. I actually probably feel a little, if you said which of these two guys is more likely to be a catcher at age 28, right now I probably, because of the body, because I, 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 it's very close. I'll put it at least that way. It's, it's something where Ruiz is at least as likely. I'll put it that way. I'm not going to go too far, but I'll go there. No, that's so, fair. I, you know, the other, as we move down the list a little bit, I, I thought it was interesting. Um, you know, we talked about the guys who were drafted this year, and for the most part, it goes in, you know, roughly the order. You know, they were taken in, you know, you go Royce Lewis, Mackenzie Gore, Hunter Green, flip, but they're very close. Uh, Kyle Wright, Brendan McKay, flipped, but they're very close. But then you start getting into your number nine and 10 picks, and, and Keston Hura and Joe Adele. And this, to me, I, I liked having these two up because. Look, Hira was, in a lot of ways, considered, you know, my, maybe the best hitter in last year's draft. And I know people obviously love Brendan McKay and what he did, and rightfully so, but when you talk about Hira, where you're getting plus hit, plus power grades, I mean, this guy had always performed playing by like an anteater ballpark in the Big West, showing power. No one does that. I mean, this is a guy who is an elite, elite hitter, went out and raked as he should have, and beyond just AZL rehabbing, when he went to the Midwest mm-hmm. League, he did. Joe Adele, who we thought, well, you know, he's a really good athlete, might be more raw, scouts weren't convinced on his ability to hit upper-level pitching, goes out and is the top prospect in both uh, the AZL and in the Pioneer League at Orem, just put up video game numbers. You know, it's, it, it's, it's interesting to me where we talk about guys, and after they sign their first year, you don't want to overreact. The way I've always viewed it is I'm not going to crush a guy if he doesn't perform great. I'll give a guy credit if they do perform great. And to me, these are two guys that – what they showed and what the reports were we got from what they showed in that first half season were great enough where you say, hey, these guys are top 50 well, prospects. The thing with Hira is, is that every there, there was never really a question coming into the draft that Keston Hira could hit. But he led Team USA in home runs, not Seth I mean, Beer, say, not Brendan McKay. He, he was the There guy. was no question. If you said, if we were talking at this time last year before the college season began, and you said, who is the best hitter? college hitter in this draft class, the answer to me would have been Keston Hura. You know, he this is a he had a track record of hitting. Understandably, there's a lot of focus on can he can't throw. Is he, you know. His elbows hurt. Right. Know. All that. He's going to be a second baseman. Phil, you know, like, I mean, there's there's nothing we've seen so far that says no, you know. The, the worst case scenario, which has not come to pass, was that he's going to need a surgery to get to that point. But, you know, but so with him. And by the way, just saying, his, he was a college guy. 
He was 20 at the time right. he was drafted. It's not like he's a 22, and 23. He's 20 at the time he's drafted, turned 21 in August. And then Joe Adele. Joe Adele, now, if we were talking at this time last year about Joe Adele, we would say signs are good, things are improving. But Joe Adele had a, a summer showcase season coming into his senior year. That was very... You say hit or miss, but really what you describe it as is miss, swing and miss, swing and miss. Credit to him, he improved his swing, he got better, he went out, now it was not the greatest competition in the world, but he went out and completely laid waste to every pitcher he faced during the Kentucky high school season. And short of you know the fact that he had a little bit of injury problems where he had to DH a lot, that's the only hickey on his pro debut that you could say. And we are talking about a guy who, tools-wise, compared favorably with anyone in the draft class. And this so is... the fact that he hit and produced at two levels is something very promising to see. You know, for, for Joe Adele, it was interesting talking to some people in the Angels organization. The guy led all of high school baseball, 25 home runs last year. Again, you have to adjust mm-hmm. to the competition a little bit. But they went out, so he goes out, pro ball, slugs 532, 11 doubles, 8 triples, 5 homers in 49 games. And then he shows up at camp in Tempe, and a direct quote from people who were there, he was hitting balls that only Mike Trout and C.J. Crone were hitting as far. This is a guy who's, I mean, they knew, hey, he's he's strong, he's physical, he's got some power. You know, we talk about sometimes guys show up better than they even thought like Mackenzie Gore's mm-hmm. changeup was way better than the Potters realized it was, mm-hmm. even when they were high on him and drafted him. Joe Adele's a guy the Angels loved. They they targeted him, they wanted him, they signed him, and he showed up. And he was even better than they thought, and his power was jaw-dropping. Oh, by the way, you know, you talk about the swing and miss. While there was definitely still some, struck out 49 times in 49 games, hit 325, on base 376. It's not like he put up, you know, that slug, but, you know, he's hitting 260 in rookie ball. The guy's making contact, and it's impact contact while showing supreme athleticism. And to, to me, that's why it made sense. Hey, let's get this guy up in the top 50 prospects of all of baseball, even though there are guys drafted, in some cases, four spots ahead of him who were not on this list or are well below it. We, we've been going on for quite a while, so we probably need to wrap up too long. Yeah. But along those lines, a guy I want to point out, there's two guys at the bottom of this top 100 that stand out because they also – Nate Pearson, 91 on this list. There are a lot of guys who are drafted ahead of Nate Pearson who are not on this top 100. Now, we had Nate Pearson. It actually fits within our parameters because, like, we also, one of the ways that we try try to do this is is we have the BA 500 draft rankings coming coming into the draft. And we pay attention to those a lot in comparison, you know, like, we... Where a guy goes in the draft matters, obviously, but also where we ranked him, where we think that the consensus of the industry, sometimes guys fall. Alex Fado fell in the draft, but talent-wise, he was better than that. We had him ranked better than that. We think that he, when we look back at it, he'll live up to that. Nate Pearson was 13th on RBA 500. So yes, he went at the very back end of the first round, but he had some really late helium. He threw really well right before the draft, he then went out and... Video I, game numbers. Yes. Again, I mean, it's short season, short, uh, Northwest League, but still. He's a college pitcher, who's, so he didn't get a chance to throw that much, 
But when he did, hey, how about I'll dominate? How about I'll dominate with a 100 mile an hour fastball? Yeah, I can do that. Okay, that's what he did. He's on this list. And then right behind him, 100 mile Rooker. an hour fastball for strikes. Not like he was yeah. all over the place with it. Brent Rooker's 92. Brent Rooker, again, a lot of people heard their names called before Brent Rooker. At the same time, if you say which college hitter had the most productive season last year, it wasn't Brendan McKay. It wasn't Keston Hura. It was, it was Brent Rooker. Brent Rooker left a smoldering rubble behind him in the SEC last year. And then he went out and did exactly the same thing to the Appy League, which you go, it's okay. the Appy League. Who cares? You know, like he should do that. So then they bump him up to high A. And if they'd have extended the season by three more weeks, he would, he showed up like for the last month or plus of the season, and he would have ranked he ranked in the top 20 home run hitters in the FSL for the season. Well, no one hits in the FSL. For power, I should say. Like It's an impossible league to hit home runs in. No one, you know, frankly can ever do it, right? So he shows up. He plays 40 games in the Florida State League. Hits 11 home runs. He finished 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Basically, he finished in the top 15 in the Florida State League in home runs, playing 40 games. Yep. I mean, the guy... It's ridiculous. 140-game schedule, by the way. 40 games. He's, he played less than a third of the season. Again. Slugged 552, 280, 364, 552, 11 homers. I mean, everything you want in a debut. And, and just showing, hey, this power is going to play. After a long college season where he's tired, you better believe he didn't have his full legs under him. Or and if he did, that's impressive. And then goes out and does what he does. And, and the thing about it is, is that with that is, is that he has, he has to hit. He is a left fielder who could also end up at first base. Has to hit. But that's what he's done. And the other thing with that is, is that the track record of guys who perform like that in high-level college leagues, really good. And so then, And then who move quick as who well. Who move quick. I mean, again, he right now... He comes into the 2018 season, and if when opening day rosters are announced, you he's say that a he's a double A, there's no part of this where you go, wow, that's aggressive. You know, no, that's saw, not even aggressive at this we point. We saw Andrew Benintendi get up a year after he was drafted. We saw Dansby Swanson get up a year after he was drafted. I, Bregman, I think, was like Bregman's 13. Let's say the year. It's the season yeah. after. It's 13, 14 months a lot of cases. I mean, if, if you said who's the leader right now, it's Brent Rooker to do that. Uh, look, it's a tremendous year. As we you know wrap up here, as we approach an hour, should wrap up. You know, we talk about the debate number one. There's also a lot of debate who's number hundred. You know, we ended up. We gave a mulligan. We, the we, ninety-nine and a hundred are the mulligans on this. So, so ninety-nine. You know, Riley Pint. Riley Pint was interesting to me because I, I really aggressively cross-checked the Rocky system, backing mm-hmm. up Tracy Ringlesby, and I was actually I don't know surprise is the right word but f- was in- interested how many evaluators, not just in-house but out-of-house, still believed in Riley Pint, given how bad his entire pro career has been, because they still still see and, stuff. They still see repeatable delivery. And, and I will say, uh, the other part of this is is we you have to know, when you see bad stats for a pitcher, especially early on in their career, there is some about of what are they working on. And we've talked about it before on the podcast, I think. There were times where Riley Pint was told to go out there well, today we're working on fastball command. 90, 90% of his starts, he was told, hey, right. we're going out working on fastball command. And so command. the thing with that is is that, so you, and his fastball command's not very good, but it was he was very predictable because, but part of that is, is that 
the reason for plenty of hope with him is that guys who do that, the, the fact that they look, their stats look terrible in low A, the team looks at it and says, in the long run, you know, again, these are less polished guys we're talking about. Polished guys, they don't have these problems. But there is reason to hope the stuff was still there, that long term he will be much better than, and Asheville's a terrible place to pitch, but that his numbers this year will not reflect his long-term talent. There's still a lot of faith from evaluators, and I really tried to dig, you know, evaluators outside the Rocky system that, hey, you know, we do think, you have to, you know, a lot of times people talk about, all right, I'm throwing a present 30 on something, I'll throw a present 50 on something. You don't, that's called double projecting. A lot of, a lot of times it's, it's hard to find situations where evaluators, evaluators would like to take pro prospects and triple project. But a pint was a guy where you could get some triple projections where I think this is a 30 now, but I can see it becoming a 55-60, which you don't hear often about pro prospects. High school guys, yes, not pros, a lot of times at least. So we'll see how he uh, how he turns it around if he can. He's got to go to Lancaster. Well, hey, he's probably going back to Asheville. Then he has Lancaster ahead of him, so... We'll see, but I think that 99th ranking was a reflection of the belief within the industry that he can still develop into a really good starter. That 100 spot, you know, we mixed and matched a few guys out of there. You know, kind of the who else do we want to get a Moloch into? Kevin Maiton was was in the discussion at one point. Uh, you look back at Anderson Espinosa, who's missing two years, but there's still so much promise if he can just stay healthy. Ultimately, we went with Adam Hazley, who tremendous college career, tremendous prep career too. Really long track record, top 10 draft pick. Um, the reports this year after he signed were not favorable. No, but no, no y- they were not. But there's a sense of, you know, we talk about Brett Rooker, you know, long college season, guy still has no. his legs and performs. This was kind of the anti that, long college season. Was not showing a whole lot that scouts could get excited about. But but you, you, you don't throw away what he did. And you also had that he was, a, you know, you're talking about a guy who's done some two-way in college and all as well. There's a lot of reasons to hope for that. Now, this is a perfect way to wrap it up with someone. For speaking of Phillies outfitters, Adam Hazley is 100 on this list. Mickey Moniak, Moniak is not. Who was number 17 last year, is not on this list. And not only is he not on this list, he was not, I mean... There were three other Phillies prospects next in line ahead of him. Right. Again, long term, the hope is, is that that was an adjustment year. And that... Mickey Boniak will come back in because again we are rooting for these players to succeed. You know we that's we like prospects. We like for prospects to do well. That being said, when we're ranking it right now, coming off the year that he had, for one, we've done studies on it. The track record of first round picks who hit like he hit in the South Atlantic League or the Midwest League in their debut season, not great. But like looking at it from a tools perspective, concern coming into the draft was is, is he going to hit for power long term? But the thought was is that this was guy was a guy who was going to be, like maybe he's uh, maybe he doesn't hit for a ton of power. At the time, Steve Finley was a popular but a premium bat, premium hit tool, center fielder. Right. Steve Finley was the popular comparison at the time of coming out of the draft. Right and, now, and Finley eventually did hit for power, but that was, you know, for the most part, he was a contact, gold glove center fielder. Right now, the hit tool was the the, the surprising thing from that was that the hit tool was not as advanced as we expected it to be. And you still saw shades of it uh, when I went out to Greensburg. You still saw that 
that beautiful left-handed swing, ability to barrel, you know, doubles to both gaps, uh, able to get to fastballs, you know, breaking balls, able to do some things, but struggled a lot against left-handed pitchers this year. And one of the things that I remember talking to him and his coaches about was he was fine the first two months of the season when pitchers were, you know, getting a feel for him and, you know, throwing him traditionally first pitch fastball, mixing, you know, understanding what they're going to do. As soon as they started pitching him backwards, he ran into some trouble. So it's something where you still saw the skills. They felt like it was it was an approach adjustment. Look, he, like every other, you know, 18, 19-year-old, needs to get bigger, needs to get stronger, needs to continue working on just some of the finer technical aspects of his game. Uh, but there's a sense the skills are still there. It was just something where there needs to be an approach adjustment. And we'll find out if he can make well, it. Well, the other thing is, is that then defensively, really want to see a little bit more from him in center. Yeah, you know, there was definitely some mixed reports. And it almost seemed like depended on when you saw him. Um, I saw him fine out there. I spoke to two other evaluators who saw him fine out there. And I spoke to two or three others who did not see him fine out there, which... Again, just consistency is a big part of adjusting to pro ball. And you can, you know, it's one thing to look great. I mean, a lot of youth baseball now is so year-round where you've got all the showcases. But, you know, it's a different grind playing, you know, Saturday, you know, you know, six, seven days a week, six months out of the year is a different grind than, all right, I've got showcase season, you know, then things, you know, but it's, it's spread out over a couple of days, you know, I've got this showcase, mm-hmm. then I have a week or so off, then between winter ball Again. and fall ball, it, it, there's nothing like the continuous grind of professional baseball. and so you Especially hope that, for a, a guy who's a little slider framed. So I think that's going to be really important to see next year is how you handle that 130, 140 games in the heat of the south, 3,000 miles from home. Could yeah. go to Lakewood next year, high A. Um, we'll see what they choose to do, but... Again, there's a couple guys. Him, you know, Maiton, different but similar. Amateur career wasn't great. Got to see how he comes back next year. There's there's plenty of guys that were left off this list where you could say, you know, absolutely, if this guy's back in the hundred, or or isn't in the or has never been in the hundred, but I could see him getting there. Oh, there, there's again. there's a, another fifty, you know, thirty, probably twenty twenty serious guys. Another twenty or thirty others. You say, yeah, I could see it. There, we. When we do this, we put together 150s, each of us, on the prospect team. And then we sit down and we go through it. 230, usually there's about 230 names we consider. And that doesn't mean, I mean, the thing with that is is that this is what we're talking about. The difference between prospect 100 and prospect 200 is less than the difference between prospect 100 and prospect one by a significant oh, margin. By a significant margin. So there are a lot of guys not on this list right now who will eventually get on it. There are guys who are on, the, on this list who this is the, we just saw peak for that prospect. You know, it's going to happen. That It always happens. But we do appreciate how much you guys love this. We, the traffic this week for it has been outstanding. We thank you for that. We do want to remind you it's a perfect time, as always, to subscribe to Baseball America right now. If you go to baseballamerica.com slash store, you can get your digital subscription as low as $5.50 per month. And when you talk about a massive amount of content right now, not just the top 100, we have the top 10 prospects with scouting reports for all 30 teams are up. We'll have organization talent rankings coming out on Monday. We have the top 200 draft prospects up. Today, we have the top 25 uh, college, top 25 with capsules on all those teams up. <laughs> today, we po- rolled out our top 20 junior college teams because the junior college season begins today, plus our top 50 JUCO draft prospects, plus 150 more names to watch. 
again, it all comes back to, if you do subscribe already, thank you. And if not, hey, join us. Come join us here, baseballamerica.com slash store. And the other reminder, because it's getting really, really soon, that we will have in our hands Baseball America Prospect Handbooks. If you order now, you will have yours a month before those who are waiting to order it from Barnes & Noble, from Amazon, whatever. We get them a lot earlier. Baseballamerica.com slash store. You can order your Prospect Handbook now and you will be reading it in less than two weeks is our, is our expectation. So it's really soon. For Kyle Glazer, I'm JJ Cooper. Thank you for the download. We will be back again. We'll keep rolling out the Prospect Podcast, so we will see you soon. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.